If someone's offering is a fellowship offering and he offers an animal from the herd, whether male or female, he is to present it before the Lord. He is to present before the Lord the animal, <clears throat> an animal without defect. <coughs> he is to lay his hand on the head of his offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood against the altar on all sides. From the fellowship offering, he is to bring a sacrifice made to the Lord by fire. All the fat that covers the inner parts or is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the covering of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons are to burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering that is on the burning wood as an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If he offers an animal from the flock as a fellowship offering to the Lord, he is to offer a male or female without defect. If he offers a lamb, he is to present it before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of his offering and slaughter it in front of the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons shall sprinkle its blood against the altar on all sides. From the fellowship offering, he is to bring a sacrifice made to the Lord by fire. Its fat, the entire fat tail cut off close to the backbone, all the fat that covers the inner parts or is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the covering of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made to the Lord by fire. If his offering is a goat, he is to present it before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it in front of the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons shall sprinkle its blood against the altar on all sides. From what he offers, he is to make this offering to the Lord by fire. All the fat that covers the inner parts or is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the covering of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire, a pleasing aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Wherever you live, you must not eat any fat or any blood. Well, this is your uh, first uh, time in church this morning. Uh, welcome. And uh, let me put you at ease by assuring you straight up that uh, we're not about to ritually uh, slaughter a bull in the foyer later on. Uh, the things that we're looking at in this book of Leviticus uh, that Nathan just read uh, are things that God told uh, his people to do uh, in the time before Jesus came, uh, in the thousand uh, or so years before Jesus came, uh, as a way of pointing uh, to the reason uh, why we all need Jesus. Uh, so if you're new uh, in church today, then please don't be put off by the strange language uh, of Leviticus, uh, because all that strangeness is designed to teach each one of us why we need uh, a saviour like Jesus. For those of you who've been here over the last couple of weeks, I hope that, uh, like me, you're really starting to enjoy the book of Leviticus, uh, that it's starting to mean something and that it's starting to stick in your mind and you're able to think about and reflect on uh, some of the things that God uh, had to say to the people uh, in, the in times past and had to say to us uh, about why we need Jesus. Uh, in fact, I was so excited last week uh, about the grain offering and about the idea of giving gifts 
of love to God that uh, I went straight to Leviticus 3 on, uh, on Monday uh, and have been waiting all week actually to be able to uh, share with you this morning some of the, the great things that God has to speak to us about. Well, today we're looking at uh, the fellowship offering. In some Bibles, uh, that's called the peace offering. But in many ways, those two words overlap when it comes to this offering. They kind of, fellowship and peace are really the themes, I suppose, together of what this offering is about. One of the things, of course, that you have to remember when you're looking at Leviticus uh, is that Leviticus all is, is not so much about the individual wor- words, the words are important, but it's more about the picture. You know, what's the overall picture that these words are painting? Well, in order to answer the question, that question about the fellowship offering, what picture is it painting, I want to jump uh, a little bit further ahead in Leviticus because the way that Leviticus is structured is that in the first five chapters there's five offerings and we're up to the third one. Uh, and then after those five chapters, we, you kind of get a bit, bit of a recap of those five offerings and a little bit more detail on each of those five offerings. So I want to jump ahead. If you've got your Bible open, uh, turn to Leviticus chapter 7. And I re- want to read a little bit more from, uh, from Leviticus chapter 7, uh, verse 11 uh, and following. So this is what it says there. These are the regulations for the fellowship offering a person may present to the Lord. If he offers it as an expression of thankfulness, then along with this thank offering, he is to offer cakes of bread made without yeast and mixed with oil, wafers made without yeast and spread with oil, and cakes of fine flour, well kneaded and mixed with oil. Along with his fellowship offering of thanksgiving, he is to present an offering with cakes of bread made with yeast, He is to bring one of each kind as an offering, a contribution to the Lord. It belongs to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the fellowship offerings. The meat of his fellowship offering of thanksgiving must be eaten on the day it is offered. He must leave none of it till morning. If, however, his offering is the result of a vow or is a free will offering, the sacrifice shall be eaten on the day he offers it. But anything left over may be eaten on the next day. Any meat of the sacrifice left over till the third day must be burned up. If any meat of the fellowship offering is eaten on the third day, it will not be accepted. It will not be credited to the one who has offered it, for it is impure. The person who eats any of it will be held responsible. Meat that touches anything ceremonially unclean must not be eaten. It must be burned up. As for other meat, anyone ceremonially unclean may eat it. But if anyone who is unclean eats any meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord... That person must be cut off from his people. If anyone touches something unclean, whether human uncleanness or an unclean animal or any unclean detestable thing, and then eats of the meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, that person must be cut off from his people. What's the picture? What's the picture that the fellowship offering is designed to paint? Well, the person who was bringing this offering was not supposed to bring just uh, a goat or a bull or a cow or something like that. They were supposed to bring uh, bread and wafers and cakes mixed with oil. You see, this isn't just a single animal being slaughtered. It's, uh, if you like, a whole feast. Uh, uh, It's a whole feast being brought to God. If you look back in in Leviticus chapter 3, verse 11, 
and verse 16. You might have noticed it when Nathan read it before. We find the words, The priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made to the Lord by fire. That is, the fellowship offering is being brought to God as food. It's not that uh, the people are feeding God. God didn't eat the things uh, that they brought. They were just burned on the fire. But it's being brought as food. It's, it's, it's symbolic, if you like, of the fact that the people are bringing food to God. But what's really astonishing about the fellowship offering is who gets to eat the meal with God. You might remember from the grain offering last week that the priests got to share in some of the things, some of the baked goods that people brought to God. In verse uh, seven, uh, 14 of chapter 7, the priest gets to share in this meal as well. Uh, the, uh, it belongs to the priest, God says, who sprinkles the blood of the fellowship offering. But verse 15 of chapter 7 implies that the person who's bringing the offering gets to share in it as well. So it talks about the meat needing to be eaten on the day that it's offered by the person who brings it. And verses 19 to 21 of chapter 7 imply that anyone who's not unclean can share in this banquet as well. In other words, the picture is of someone bringing a meal to God, a lavish banquet to God, and of a whole host of people sharing in it together. The reason for the banquet, uh, for why a person might throw a feast like this, is given uh, in verse 12 and 16 of chapter 7. Uh, it says that it could be out of thankfulness to God. Uh, it could be because the person has made a vow to God and they've fulfilled the vow. And so they're sort of they're thankful to God that they've been able to do what they promised. Uh, or it could be a, a free will offering. That is, uh, just an offering... Uh, arising out of a desire to love uh, and to show thankfulness to God uh, in general. So the picture here is of a banquet thrown by this person who's captivated by thankfulness to God, by love to God, uh, and they want to share that not only with God, but with other people as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a fellowship offering, it's a, it's, it's a peace offering, it's a it's a banquet of peace and of fellowship and of community uh, and of love uh, and of sentiments like that. But isn't that an amazing thought that a person would be so captivated by God and so full of thankfulness to God that what they want to do is throw a banquet for him. They want to, they want to throw a party for God. That's how excited they are and that's how thankful they are about God. You know, we throw parties for all kinds of things, but have you ever sort of been so amazed by God that you thought, what I would really love to do is to throw a party to celebrate what God has done for me? You might uh, invite someone around to your house. Well, I'm just having a dinner tonight uh, just because God is great. Would you like to come over? I'm celebrating God's greatness. Uh, you, maybe you just got a new job. You've been praying for a long time uh, to get a, uh, a new job uh, and you finally get it and you say, would you like to come over to my house tonight? I'm, I just want to celebrate. I want to throw a bit of a, a banquet to celebrate the fact uh, that God has been kind to me. Isn't, isn't that a wonderful thought? I suspect that's why uh, 
in the early days after Jesus rose from the dead, there's all these reports about how the church met together and feasted. They weren't just, they weren't just enjoying each other's company, they were celebrating what had happened in Jesus rising from the dead. And they were doing that through food and through, and through a meal together. But what's really astounding about the picture of Leviticus chapter 3 is not just that people are holding a banquet to celebrate and to honour God, it's that they're holding a banquet to celebrate and honour God and God is invited as the guest of honour. We saw last week uh, in the grain offering that, that God shares with uh, people the gifts that, that people bring to him. So God receives gifts from us and he shares them back with his people. Well, here in the fellowship offering is this amazing possibility, this amazing uh, hope, if you like, of sitting down to share a meal with the creator of heaven and earth. It's interesting that in the, uh, in the New Testament, salvation is often pictured as a banquet. Uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb, it's described as in Revelation 19. I suspect it's pictured like that because it's one of the most intimate things that you can do with people, isn't it? To share a meal with someone, is, it speaks of a tremendous bond and a tremendous uh, amount of fellowship and love with someone. Uh, think of a relationship that you uh, have, the degrees of relationship that you have with a neighbour. You know, you can have the neighbour, you can have the neighbour that you never see uh, and that you never speak to. Uh, then you can kind of move a step up from that and you have the neighbour that you chat to when you, when you sort of pass each other, when you're mowing the lawn or you're gardening or something like that. Then you move on to the, the next level of relationship with the neighbour where you, you sort of trade items, you know, you borrow their spade uh, and they borrow a cup of sugar. And then you sort of move on to the next level, which is where you have, uh, you know, afternoon tea together or something like that. But the, sort of the pinnacle of relationship with a neighbour is inviting them around for a meal and, and you being invited around by them uh, for a meal. It speaks, sharing a meal together speaks of love and of fellowship uh, and, of, and of intimacy, I think, in a relationship. Here is the picture of the fellowship offering. It's the picture of people created by God sitting down for a meal with the creator of heaven and earth. It's a picture of fellowship and of intimacy and of communion with God. It's a picture of a celebration of God's kindness and God's goodness. Yet uh, surely anyone who, who actually brought one of these offerings, one of these ritual offerings to God, surely anyone who did that would have realised that this wasn't just an ordinary meal. You see, they had to bring this uh, animal to uh, a tent, uh, a, a, a temple kind of tent. They had to put their hand on the animal. They had to slit its throat. Uh, and, and that blood then had to be poured out of the base uh, of an altar. You know, if, if they'd thought about this for a moment or two, they would have realised that, yeah, it's a meal with God, but it's not any ordinary meal. 
What was the message behind all this other stuff that had to go on? Well, the message is really quite simple. It's that, it's that no one, no ordinary person, can expect to just walk up and have a meal with God. This whole uh, ritual was designed to teach what's necessary for you and I to sit down and have a meal and communion with the creator of heaven and earth. First, there needs to be the spilling of blood. Verse 3 uh, of chapter 3 says uh, that the sacrifice which the person brought <clears throat> needed to be slaughtered uh, and, then, and then that blood poured out on the altar. That was a picture of the fact that God's wrath against sin needed to be absorbed by death, by the shedding uh, of someone's blood. There needed to be justice and retribution for the crimes that people had committed against God. Second, the animal needed to be gutted and the fat on its inner parts needed to be burned by fire. In Leviticus 1, we saw that inner parts was a picture in the Bible of a person's sort of inside, uh, the, the condition of their inside, the, the condition of their heart, uh, and that's the same here too. Uh, but here you get the kidneys added. Well, in, in the time that the Bible was written, the kidneys were uh, 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 the place, the seat, if you like, of the deepest emotions that a person felt. So it wouldn't have been all that uncommon for a person to say uh, to, to his wife, uh, I love you from the very bottom of my kidneys. You know, to us that sounds ridiculous because we're so used to, to speaking about, you know, I love you from the bottom of my heart. But that was the way that they thought about things. They loved deeply from their kidneys. And well, what about the fat? Well, the fat was the way of describing the best bit. The fat portion was the best portion. It was the richest portion. So why burn kidneys and fat? Well, I think the picture is of the fact that when this person brings... Uh, this meal, when the, if a person wants to celebrate a meal with God, that what is needed is for them to be offering in themselves, from the very deepest parts of themselves, the best love and gifts and desires towards God. They're offering the best portion of their inner parts. For us to be able to sit down with God, we need to offer, be able to offer him the best portion of what's inside. I think it's hard for us to understand exactly what's going on here unless we grasp a very significant point. And that is that the picture here is not of us sitting down for a meal with a friend, but of us sitting down for a meal with a king. You see, the trouble is that God is our king and when we finally decide that we'd like to know him and sort of have fellowship with him and sit down uh, together with him for a meal, we've been running this kind of revolutionary campaign against him for years and years. During the reign uh, of Elizabeth I, her cousin, uh, Mary Stuart from Scotland, decided that she'd like to be queen in the place of Elizabeth. And so she launched uh, a kind of a very unsuccessful campaign to uh, rob Elizabeth of the throne of England. 
Mary was captured uh, and she was sentenced to be executed for her crime. Imagine that Mary is sitting in that jail cell a few hours before she's about to be executed and she suddenly decides, I'd, uh, I'd quite like actually, after trying to depose Mary, I'd quite like still to be able to sit down uh, and have a meal with her and sort of, you know, celebrate uh, all the things that we have in common. Well, obviously her impending execution is going to be a bit of an obstacle to that. She's about to be put to death. Uh, and so once dead, she will not be able to uh, celebrate a meal with Elizabeth. But imagine that even by some amazing feat, she could come back from the dead. Uh, would Elizabeth be willing to have Mary over for dinner if Mary still harboured those same revolutionary desires that she had before? No. In order for Elizabeth and Mary to sit down together, Mary would need to show her complete allegiance and submission to her monarch. In the same way, in order for us to sit down with God, in order for us to know God, to be able to relate with God, God needs to deal both with our crimes, our revolutionary crimes, where we've tried to depose him as our king. God has to do something about the, the issues of justice and his anger against people who've, who've tried to rebel against him, who've destroyed his creation. God needs to do something about our crime. And God also needs to do something about the fact that we're not totally loyal and committed to him. The trouble is we can't pay the penalty for our sins and we can't offer God our total allegiance. The good news of the fellowship offering is that it's possible for a substitute to do that in our place. Like in the burnt offering, the person who brought this offering, they laid their hands on the head of the animal, they slaughtered it, they burned the fat of the inner parts and all that was a picture of the fact that the person themselves didn't need to go through this, to this trial and, and, uh, and d fulfill these expectations of God that somebody else could do it in their place. The person was saying, in effect, God, this animal is place taking my place in death and destruction. Please accept it on my behalf. You see, none of us can expect to bear the penalty of eternal death and share a meal with God on the other side because there is no other side to eternal death nor can any of us expect to offer to God our complete and total allegiance because our desire to reject God runs too deep now the fellowship offering teaches us that the only way to be reconciled to God the only way to share a meal with God is for someone to die in our place and for someone to offer the best part the best of their inner parts to God on our behalf. Like all the offerings so far as well, this offering is something of a double-edged sword. 
It speaks of a possibility and it speaks of a problem. At the same time as holding out to these people the possibility that they could eat with God, it showed them that that was a far-off goal. In fact, these people must have realised that they weren't sitting down to have a meal with God, that they were just bringing an animal to a tent and it was being burned in a fire. God wasn't eating with them. They couldn't even go inside the tent. God doesn't live in tents made by human hands, so even if they could go in, God wouldn't have been there. No, like all the offerings in Leviticus, this one speaks of opportunity, but it also speaks of a problem. Imagine going to a wedding, you know, being tremendously excited about celebrating such a great day with the bride and groom, and this lavish feast is served uh, you know, there's roast pork and, uh, you know, they, and they crack open the bottles of, of Grange Hermitage. You know, this kind of this amazing banquet. Uh, and it gets to dessert and you suddenly realise that the bride and groom aren't even there. How would you feel about that? Well, that's a bit what it was like for Israel with this offering. They were kind of trying to celebrate sharing a meal with God, but, but God wasn't there. Not in person. If the bull or the sheep or the goat and the cakes mixed with oil, if those things had been enough for people to be acceptable with God, then, then there wouldn't have been a problem. They would have been sitting down to a meal with God, but they weren't. And that tells us that what they needed and what we needed was not a bull or or a goat or an ox or a sheep or whatever. What we need is a better sacrifice than they offered. What we need is the thing that all those sacrifices and offerings pointed to. We need a perfect man, a perfect man without defect, without sin, a man totally loyal to God, a man who sheds his blood on our behalf, who absorbs the fury of God's wrath against us, We needed a perfect sacrifice and there is no other sacrifice that achieves all that except Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's the amazing image which the fellowship offering puts before us. The sacrifice which God eats, which enables us to come to him, is Jesus Christ, his own Son. God takes and accepts that offering so that we can eat with him. And the thing that we receive and eat so that we can eat with him is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The food, if you like, which brings us together is the sacrifice of God's own Son. Jesus said in John chapter 6, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you which is a really colourful way of saying, unless you believe in me, unless you trust in me, you can't dine with God. If you do believe in me, then you can and you will. Set against uh, the backdrop of this fellowship offering, of this hope of eating with God and this distance from God, 
there are few things which speak as astonishingly and as profoundly of the effectiveness of Jesus' sacrifice than the times when sinners invited Jesus to their house and he went to eat with them. In Luke chapter 5, we have the story, the account of the time when Jesus called Levi to follow him. And Levi uh, accepted Jesus' call. And Levi's response is, is, is amazing. What did he do? He threw a banquet. And he invited all his friends who were sinners as well. And he invited Jesus. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and shared a meal with a tax collector, with a scoundrel, and with a sinner. How shocking for all the religious people who were outside and watching, in, watching on what was going on. Jesus sat down with Levi. Why? Because Levi trusted in Jesus And all the religious people outside who trusted in themselves, they all missed out and looked on in bitterness because they didn't trust in Jesus. How shocking, but how incredibly wonderful that in the life of Jesus, this picture of sinners sitting down with the God of heaven and earth, began to be fulfilled. I don't know where uh, you're all at this morning. Uh, I don't know if you're even interested in knowing God and having uh, genuine intimacy and fellowship with God. But let me invite you on God's behalf, if you don't know God, let me invite you to know him through Jesus Through Jesus, that sacrifice whose blood was shed. Through Jesus, who offered the best of his inner self, the best of his heart and mind and soul and strength to God, so that people who believe in him have that promise of one day sitting down at a wedding supper, a wedding reception like none other that you can imagine. Let me invite you, if you don't know God, to pray that he would accept you through Jesus. And if you've done that, if you do know God, if you have uh, pleaded with God, humbled yourself uh, before him and uh, pleaded with him to accept you through Jesus, then let me encourage you to rejoice uh, and to celebrate. The picture here in Leviticus 3 is not just of opportunity, and of problem it's a picture of celebration and rejoicing at the promise of sitting down to share intimate fellowship with the creator of heaven and earth we're going to do that in a moment through song we're going to celebrate god's goodness uh, through song in a moment but uh, first let me pray uh, and and then we'll stand and sing Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, incredible and unexpected promise 
of intimacy with you. Lord, we are so tempted to think of you as far off and distant. Uh, And yet, Lord, we know that through Jesus Christ you promise fellowship with you, now through your Holy Spirit dwelling uh, in those who believe in Jesus and in the future, Lord, the promise of resurrected bodies uh, which dwell uh, in your presence. Father, we pray that you would open to our hearts this wonderful vision uh, of knowing you. Father, we pray that that would cause our hearts to sing and to uh, delight uh, and to have exceedingly great joy. Father, we pray for those who, who don't know you, uh, Lord, those who trust in themselves. Uh, Lord, people maybe who are excited about knowing you but are trying to know you in their own strength. Father, we pray that you would humble them before Jesus, that they might be saved. Father, we, uh, we pray this not because we deserve it, but because you are merciful uh, and you promise uh, salvation to those who believe in Jesus. Father, we ask it in his name. Amen.